Hello, and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. If you like what you hear, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. This week we have Ben and Dan. Hello. Hey, everyone. So to sort of turn our attention more specifically, let's talk this week about drug prices and how all these new potential drugs, new treatment therapies are going to be affected by the coronavirus and just what the drug landscape might look like coming out of all of this. So the drug everyone keeps talking about is remdesivir, and it's owned by Gilead. Is, is that correct, Ben? Yeah, Gilead. And um, so what the state of it right now is that they have given away their entire stockpile of drugs. How does that work? They're just giving it for free to anyone who wants it? Uh, so what they did is they donated their entire stockpile to the U.S. government. Um, they're not giving it away willy-nilly. It still hasn't technically been approved for treatment of COVID, but its initial phase three trial results look promising enough to where the FDA is going to accelerate its evaluation process and hopefully get it out to people as soon as possible, because it does seem like it helps in certain cases. And so what is the life cycle of a drug? Can you explain this to me? It, it, from the second you invent a drug, then you have to have it submit through testing, and how long does it take to get it patented? How does that work? Yeah, so when a drug is initially discovered, usually it's kind of a random process where random different kinds of compounds will be tested in different scenarios, and you'll start to see an initial effect. What then happens is you'll move into an animal model of a disease. If this is cancer or immunology, more often than not, this is a mouse model. So the drug is evaluated based on its ability to influence the progression of a disease in mice. And once you get enough data there, you file what's called an IND with the FDA. So this is where you say, I have an investigational new drug. And once the FDA receives that, you have a 20-year exclusivity for this particular compound in order to market it or do whatever you want with it. But from there, you have to spend almost always at least 10 years doing clinical trials in human settings in order to prove that this is a drug that is safe and effective. And so generally, once a drug goes through all of those trial phases and it is actually available to go to market, every, any pharma company is going to have about 10, a 10-year 10 period where they can make money off of it. Could those trials be sped up for something like remdesivir because it's getting so many real-world applications earlier in the process than a normal drug would have? Yeah, that's a good question. So the FDA recently has kind of uh, started to come to terms with the fact that they are a huge roadblock in, in this whole process. So there have been different kinds of designations that, that the FDA can give to a new drug that they're evaluating. So there are different kinds of accelerated approval programs that they can do. Remdesivir is also an interesting case because it was previously evaluated for Ebola and it went through, it went into phase three trials for Ebola and it's at that point that it failed. So a lot of the safety work 
had already been done. So that's why remdesivir could sort of be dropped immediately into phase three trials and didn't have to go through the process from the get-go. Gotcha. And are there, okay, so to broaden this out a little bit more, the in a normal situation when there isn't, when it wouldn't be a sort of a PR nightmare to be charging people a lot for a drug like this, this drug probably would cost a lot because it's it can save people's lives. So how... How does that work exactly? How do people decide what the price for a drug coming to market is going to be? Well, what I would say is every drug is is different. There's sort of a lot of different broad factors that a company will evaluate or take into consideration when they're deciding where to price a drug. For this one in particular, I think the most important thing is the level of public awareness, which is absolutely something that all these companies take into account it would look incomprehensibly bad uh, for Gilead to price this drug aggressively, given the fact that we're in a complete pandemic, everyone is in lockdown, yada, yada, yada. So for them to be perceived to be profiteering off of this would be a terrible, terrible, terrible look for them. So beyond the fact that they've already donated their entire stockpile, I would not expect them to price this aggressively based on that alone. So maybe one of the interesting things about this you were saying is that there was already a trial underway for Ebola testing. And so the company could kind of piggyback off of that and try it for a Russia trial for COVID. But can you talk a bit about the fate, the run up to getting something to like a final trial? Like this was something that was kind of picked off the shelf, but how does the whole process work? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I think the thing that a lot of people kind of overlook here is the sheer scale of the cost that we're talking about. Um, this is an incredibly expensive industry. These companies make multiple billions of dollars, but at the same time, they are spending almost in, incomprehensible amounts of money. So in terms of the way, the, like the odds that a drug is actually going to come to market, it's, it's important to keep in mind that basically every drug, when it initially goes into human trials, has about a one in a thousand chance of actually coming to market. And so what this ultimately means is that these large pharma companies are spending huge, huge, huge amounts of money to, to even run all these trials. So large pharma companies are spending about five and a half billion dollars per new drug in terms of all the preclinical trials, all the marketing, yada, yada, yada. For the five and a half billion, you're saying that's basically before they even really like sell a drug, they've spent $5 billion getting it to the pharmacy to where you and I could buy it. Exactly. So per new drug coming to market, on average, a pharma company has spent about five and a half billion dollars in order to just get to that point. So they're in the hole for that much money. But so for remdesivir, for instance, uh, because it was already evaluated in preclinical phase one and then phase two trials for Ebola, so it was established that a human can take it, it will get cleared out of the body, it's not going to kill a person, that's already a huge step forward. And so because that legwork was already done, Gilead could basically move it straight into phase three trials, which again, are expensive but at the same time, their costs overall are reduced compared to starting from scratch. And so in order for this to be profitable, basically drugs need to, at a higher level, be a luxury product or they need brand name drugs. Can you explain the difference between 
Brand names and generics? So a brand name drug is a drug that still falls within that period of exclusivity. So about 10 years after it launches, no one else can make a copy of that drug, which is what is a uh, what would be called a generic, right? So when a generic gets introduced, this generally hugely undercuts the price of a brand name drug, and the brand name drug has to lower its price in order to still be competitive. So the example here would be a Novartis drug called Gleevec, which was a really huge breakthrough when it came out. Its period of exclusivity has uh, has lapsed, and now there are several different versions of it available on the market. You know, you can go and buy a Matnib for a fraction of the cost of Gleevec when it first launched. So for a drug like that, let's take let's turn it back in terms of remdesivir. Is there is there a generic of that? And if if there's not because you can't produce it, is there a way to produce something that's extremely similar and has almost the same effects? But and could that be rushed to market, or I guess it would still have to go through the same twenty year, ten year process? Yeah, it would still have to go through the whole process. So for something like remdesivir when slash if it launches, um, no one else can make something that uses the same active compound. So there would be no generic available for at least a decade, at which point it might be irrelevant. You know, fingers crossed it's irrelevant. If someone were to make something that was kind of similar, but not exactly the same, so maybe a small difference in terms of, you know, a double bond here, a hydrogen there, uh, something like that it would still need to go through FDA approval from scratch. So uh, a generic version of something is literally an exact copy, you know, down to the last amino acid. That so there's is, no way of getting around these patent laws for any other company other than Gilead. No, exactly. So Gilead ha- would have an exclusive right to market and sell that compound, that specific exact compound and any variation on that would have to go through FDA testing from the get-go. The key thing I think that with which maybe is what Gilead's strategy is, is for any of these patent laws, they work kind of well as just the system is running in the background. If there's a national crisis and they are not, if they're charging $25,000 a person for COVID drugs, then Congress would change the patent law and like exempt this one drug. And I think that's probably what some of their strategy was, was to get it to a place where they have the drug that is adopted as the cure or the treatment plan, but keep it free long enough that it fades enough from public attention so that they could start charging. And then they're locked in as the like dominant monopoly for treatment and the patent laws aren't changed. I think part of it is, as well is that Gilead is kind of playing with house money here. You know, we sort of touched on it earlier, but they already ran a lot of the trials. So that's already kind of accounted for in the past. You know, a lot of the Ebola trials were done back in, what was it, 2008, 2010, it whatever. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Um, so because of that, their exclusivity period is already starting to run out because it's, you know, before they even started the human trials, they already got the, the the ball rolling in terms of their 20 year period. So I think for that reason, because like I said, it's it's sort of on the books for, for years and years and years, it's not something that they're they're really focused on in terms of their 2020 projections. So I think that like they they 
really would be hard pressed to, to price it above any any kind of reasonable threshold. So wait, can you explain well reading up on some of this, there's you can the government can negotiate pharmaceutical prices for Medicaid, but it's illegal for Medicare. How does that work? Well, so this is sort of a huge failing in terms of public policy and, and Medicare. The US government does not collectively negotiate drug prices, partially, I think, to fuel the profits of a lot of these US-based drug companies. I think that's that's kind of the, the main motivation overall. Yes, I think you know a huge issue with the U.S. obviously is our extraordinary healthcare spending, and a lot of that is tied to the fact that we don't collectively bargain with Medicare. I think this is like literally the smallest baby step that we could take in order to start getting the U.S. healthcare expenditure in line with the rest of the world. Every other first world government allows for collective bargaining on their Medicare equivalent program with drug companies. So this is why drug costs are typically, you know, 30 to 40% lower in the rest of the developed world. And yeah, so the fact that the US doesn't do that is fucking ludicrous. But I don't know, I I can't really speak to exactly why they didn't do it beyond uh, the fact that they just want to preserve so but, margins. I get. I, I guess what I what it makes you wonder is the idea of having a single payer system is that you can negotiate with all the power mm-hmm. of that one payer. So yes, that's a, that's a huge part of it. I think as well. Right now, Medicare has about an eight to ten percent overhead margin right now, which is genuinely not that bad. People think that it operates um, super inefficiently and it. There's a lot of wastage. You compare this to the private insurance companies, and they are taking roughly 40 to 50% overhead. So they are looking, they're obviously looking for reasons to keep people off of their plans. They're looking for reasons to not cover anything. And fundamentally, we just need healthcare to be a human right. uh, And the government should be providing that for people. So wait, let me just take this into the realm of science fiction for a minute. So do these same things for patents apply to something like a vaccine? Or is that more of like a public health utility? They still apply. So a lot of vaccines are pretty old at this point. There's not a lot of new vaccines that are being invented. Otherwise, you know, we as adults would be going to the doctor to get different kinds of shots here and there. So I think that's that's kind of important to keep in mind. So for a lot of vaccines that, you know, are relevant to, to us, the exclusivity period has already expired. So they're treated more as a utility. So wait, um, just yeah. so hypothetical, if Martin Screlly from his jail cell invented the vaccine for coronavirus, could he, through our laws, charge whatever he wanted? Yeah, he could. And he's the kind of person who would not give a shit about the public backlash. And so, yeah, he, he could do that. But so at the same time, step back, like uh, just a one, one degree, let's just say in the hypothetical future, the U S has a vaccine, France has a vaccine, China has a vaccine, but let's say one of them is only like 80% effective where the other one is a hundred percent effective versus could there be, could could you be giving the vaccine the a worse vaccine to people that can't afford it and then charging an insane amount for a more effective vaccine to the 
five billionaires who can afford it or something like that? Well, Jesus, that's uh, that's pretty dystopian. But yes, you could in theory do that uh, in in the U.S. Yeah, if all of those drugs got if all, all of those drugs if all of those vaccines got approval, then yeah. But that, that you would then face. I'm just trying to think of a scenario where, in all these cases, when you think about a drug that is either overpriced and, and then it comes down, or it's always because of some sort of public backlash. It's not in anything written into a law. It always has to do with this. You know, power of just the consumer to to just negative PR. So I'm just trying to wonder what what is the incentive, or if you were going to change that system coming out of something like this, when what how, what would those safeguards look like? So you touched on the first thing uh, in terms of how to bring drug prices down, which is PR backlash. I think the second thing is the introduction of a generic to market and from my perspective, this is what I would really try and facilitate if I were to overhaul the way that drug development works right now. Um, I think that pharma companies are and should be entitled to charge whatever they want for genuinely life-saving and breakthrough medications. But at the same time, what they should not be able to do is then fight off generics and give a lot of, you know, give shit tons of money to doctors in order to get them to prescribe the brand name drug instead of a generic if it's available. I think that what the FDA should be doing is they should be facilitating the development of generics. They should be incentivizing these companies to develop generics. One phenomenon in particular is what is called sort of ultra-orphan indications. So these are patients with extremely rare diseases that might have only one treatment option and it's a brand name drug. But because of the money that these big pharma companies are spending on lobbying and, uh, you know, cozying up to the FDA, cozying up to influential doctors, no generic company is willing to step in and make a drug, uh, make a generic version of that same drug to actually save these people money because there's just no margin in it for them. It's basically impossible for them to get even a toehold in that very, very small niche market. So this is becoming increasingly relevant as we get better and better treatment options that are sort of serving fewer and fewer people. Obviously, that's generally a good thing because we're getting more specific in terms of what we're producing. But at the same time, it sort of has this side effect of pushing generic competition further and further out. And so I think that's that's really, if, if I were to try and lower costs um and lower drug prices that's that's exactly where i would target it does seem like a huge issue has to do with lobbying from uh from what i was watching and reading about the um oxycontin it just i never i never realized until recently how much money is put in for sales representatives for pharmaceutical companies that are trying to get local doctors to prescribe more of their specific drug. Yes, it's a huge sort of shadow industry. And it's not only, uh, it's not just a flat expenditure as well. You know, they'll buy lunches, they'll do, they'll hold sort of seminars and very exotic locales where a doctor will be flown out and blah, 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 blah. Um, so yes, all of that is, in my opinion, malfeasance and i also think that it it would 
if you got rid of all that nonsense, uh, then pharma companies would have more money to spend on R&D and potentially we would have more interesting new drugs to be evaluated and tested. But it's kind of tough. Right? Like, I agree that we should have single payer, but I do think it's a little hard to say, well, how do you draw the line on what's an okay sales practice to sell your drug? Like, I agree, paying doctors to go on a lavish vacation seems bad, but we do that in every industry in the world. Like, Vegas has a lot of convention centers, like, for a reason, because every industry is like, oh, I want all these people to buy my stuff. Let's do a conference in Vegas, all free. And so I just, I, I wonder, is it come back to, like, the fundamental aspect of should healthcare be a business? And in America, it's definitely a business. And so then they feel okay using business practices, but to really, really reshape this, we need to make healthcare not a business in America. I think I completely agree with everything you, everything you said. I think, yeah, like ultimately this is coming down to people's lives. And I think it's like supremely fucked up that someone's access to a life-saving medication is going to be influenced by a pharma company paying their doctor to go somewhere or or whatever. And I think there's also a lot of, you know, small practical things that we could start to implement. You know, a lot of the time when a doctor writes a prescription, if they write it for a brand name drug, or they're just not aware of a generic, a pharmacy is not able to actually substitute the generic version to potentially save the person money, even though it's exactly the same compound, it will do exactly the same thing. And so I think that that's, you know, there's sort of little baby steps that we could start to take. To, to help alleviate some of this issue. What is, Dan, being in law school, what is the legal definition of something being a utility, a social utility? So, like, when did electricity or running water become a, u- a utility, and what separates that from the Internet? I think I'd say probably the technical definition is something like the government owns it and provides it, and so you could say something is a utility like water or power, but they're not fully a utility until the government kind of either owns it or I guess declares it a utility and regulates it in a certain way saying like, you have to give people access to this. Here are all the restrictions if you want to try not to. But utilities, it, it's a weird in concept in America because like our, in San Francisco, our power is a private company. It's currently a bankrupt private company, but it's like a, it's a private company with outside investors and shareholders, even though that's a, a utility. And so I think that's like a that's part of the problem is like the concept of utility in America is definitely very messed up. A lot of things that are thought of as utilities are actually private companies that are just heavily regulated. Got it. So there's basically no real utilities. Everything is sort of just bought and sold at a certain regulated price, but it's still based off of private ownership. Right. There's not usually like a, something's not a utility or not. There's like a scale of which everything you sell, you can't be committing fraud. But if you're selling electricity, there might be a lot more rules. You can't change your price unless you go to this government body and seek approval. So it's kind of just utility means more regulated, but it's not a black and white. This is utility and this is not. Got it. But from what I've been hearing, we think that price controls are not necessarily the best idea for something like a drug. 
Yeah, I mean, so this is sort of going back to drug pricing. I think what I mentioned earlier, I think that drug companies should generally be allowed to profit off of their research. Like we said, it's costing them about five and a half billion dollars in order to, to do this. And they have to be incentivized to continue to go through this insane process without the the ability to profit off of a drug we would presumably lose a lot of life-saving medications going forward and you know there have been different kinds of economic analyses uh, that suggest that the imposition of strict pricing controls would actually do exactly that and would ultimately cost all of humanity a significant number of life years going forward and i think that you know, there's an important balance to be struck. So I think, obviously, the pharmaceutical industry generally is good. And maybe this is kind of a bold statement, but the things that they do, the medications that they make are very important for humanity going forward. I don't think that that is especially controversial. So anything that we do as a species to affect their willingness and ability to produce more more lottery tickets, you know, so that's the way to kind of think of the drug development process is something that we need to scrutinize very, very closely. So while I am absolutely a huge proponent of Medicare for all, I'm a huge proponent of limiting the ability of pharmaceutical companies to outcompete generics or to lobby and do all this kind of shady shit. I genuinely do not think that it would be a good thing if their ability to price drugs the way they wanted to was regulated. Thank you for listening to What Our Point this week. Again, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Our Point. Feel free to engage if you like what you heard here or if you have any questions or if you simply think that we're idiots and you totally disagree with everything. Thanks as always, and stay safe. Bye now.